ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Thursday, January the 25th. I'm Sabra Lane, coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. The Albanese government is trying to pull off the biggest policy shift of its first term, claiming changed economic circumstances are forcing it to break an election promise not to change the coalition-era Stage 3 tax cuts. It's planning to halve the tax cuts for the highest earners, but says all 13.6 million taxpayers will benefit in some way. Isabel Masali prepared this report. On July 1, Australia's tax system changes. But since the original changes were designed five years ago, the world has changed. The Albanese government's defence of its broken promise on tax cuts has already begun, with Labor launching a new ad. So we're doing the responsible thing, delivering better, fairer tax cuts. More people get a bigger tax cut. Now pitched as Labor's cost-of-living tax cut, the Stage 3 tax cuts introduced by the Morrison government have been revamped. we found a better way, a better way for middle Australia, a better way for cost-of-living and a better way for the economy. Treasurer Jim Chalmers explaining to the 7.30 program the government's motivation for breaking the Prime Minister's repeated promises that he wouldn't change the already legislated tax cuts. We want a tax cut for every taxpaying worker. Uh, There is an emphasis on middle Australia and the reason for that simply is because we were able to find a way uh, to make a meaningful difference to all taxpayers rather than a disproportionate benefit uh, for a few taxpayers. Uh, The many will benefit from this rather than the few. That is a motivating factor here, but we found a way to do it in a way where everyone who pays tax and works gets a tax cut under what we're proposing. In a nutshell, the tax rate for people earning between 18 and 45,000 will be cut from 19 to 16%. And instead of putting everyone earning between 45 and $200,000 on a flat 30% rate, that'll only apply up to the $135,000 mark. The government will retain the 37% rate for those on more than 135,000. And the top tax rate of 45% will kick in at $190,000. Look, from a business community perspective, certainty really is the key. Speaking before the details were released, the CEO of the Council for Small Business Organisations, Luke Akdestrut, says any changes are concerning. So to come out and change direction, I suppose, overnight is something that doesn't send a signal to the business community or small businesses that, you know, that there's consultation, that there's follow-through. ANU Associate Professor and Economist Ben Phillips believes the original Stage 3 tax cuts were flawed. Overall, what what the the Stage 3 version 2 really is, is it's taking a little bit of money away from higher income earners and giving it to middle income earners, and that's really the sum of it. I think it was always a problem with stage three tax cuts that they overcompensated high income owners and didn't do enough for the, for the middle. So I think that for mine, that's the main argument for why we needed to have a change with stage three. Broken tax promises often stick in the minds of voters. The Albanese government is counting on the vast majority of taxpayers who benefit from this, forgetting that. Isabel Masali reporting. High winds from tropical cyclone Kiralia are beginning to buffet the North Queensland coast as the state braces for its second cyclone in as many months. Kiralia is expected to make landfall late tonight near Townsville as a Category 2. It's not only the winds, it's the likelihood of heavy rain that's worrying residents and also farmers in the region, as Nick Grimm reports. For mango farmer Maria Picconi, the second bout of wild weather to hit the North Queensland coast this summer is simply too much too soon. It's sort of hard to describe. Everyone's worn out 
After last month's drenching from Cyclone Jasper, the managing director of Manbaloo Mangoes, which has farms located near Townsville, says the region and its residents need a break. And that's exactly what I'm seeing with my crew. We're all worn out. And, you know, when you've been through it, psychologically you go, okay, we got through that. And now we're, you know, we're cleaning up. And then we're going to go through it again, double whammy. So that's probably the other point. It psychologically gets very tough. It's been a long, disjointed, tough season because of the weather conditions and the temperatures during 2023. And now 2024, after thinking that was going to be an El Nino with some of the characteristics we thought an El Nino has, it's a different type of El Nino and we're bombarded by two cyclones. So psychologically, I am a bit concerned about my crew and about my um, fellow growers because it's tough. We've sort of had enough this summer. (laughs) The prospect of another cyclone bringing days of more rain could be devastating for local horticultural growers. It means that a lot of growers who are hoping to have an okay season are having very, very a tough economic outcome from this. And then moving forward, you know, whenever we get this extreme weather, horticultural producers can't produce as much and all our costs go up very, very significantly. It's often a big clean-up and we lose quality, we lose the crop, we lose all sorts of things that are associated with consumers getting a reliable supply of fruit and vegetable. Others are choosing to remain optimistic. Alan Parker is from the Kalamia Cane Growers Organisation. It represents 130 producers in the Burdekin region south of Townsville. Hopefully it's going to dollop a heap of rain on us for a day, charge up all the watering systems, alleviate my growers from having a huge power cost bill and water their crop. In the worst case scenario though, what do you fear most, the wind or the rain? Both. At this time of year, the new cane is growing. So you've got solid cane penetrating out of the ground that's only a few inches in height and possible high winds could snap that cane off. That's what the wind will do. Obviously the rain waterlogging and prolonged rain, um, days and days of rain, what we've seen in North Queensland and we've seen time and time again in South Queensland, sugar cane areas where the cane gets waterlogged and then doesn't dry off or actually kills the cane because it's been smothered in water or been living in water for a week or a few days, which is not a good thing. So, yeah, both the wind and rain can give us havoc. And it's the cyclone's aftermath that could bring trouble. So we're really in an unknown territory at the moment, but all the ingredients are there for major flooding, but I hope that that doesn't occur. Jonathan Knott is a professor of geoscience at James Cook University in Cairns. He fears there could be a repeat of the heavy downpour that followed Cyclone Jasper last month. Jasper was only a Category 2 and then that weakened just to a low and it stalled over Cape York Peninsula. That was the critical issue with Jasper. It stalled and sat there and then just allowed very moist air to be drawn in onto the Cape York Peninsula coast. So it wasn't the low per se crossing over the coast, it was the events four days later because that low sat there and stalled. And then we got all this moist air in this convergence zone that sat right over Cairns that produced all the flooding. That could be the critical issue. Professor Jonathan Knott from James Cook University, that report from Nick Grimm. For two years, floods have devastated communities along the East Coast. New figures show more than 6,000 people are still waiting for their insurers to pay out, as Alison Branley reports. You need to get in there. 
don't get my covered. <laughs> Nearly two years after floods swept through the Victorian town of Rochester, Shelley Sybaris is still living in a caravan. It's not pleasurable. There's not a lot of room. It's just not comfortable. Her insurer claims some of the damage to her house was pre-existing. It originally offered her less than half her insured amount. I've dealt with RACV for 30 years. Never had a problem. I don't know why they're doing this to us. New figures from the Insurance Council of Australia show there were 160,000 home insurance claims made after flooding disasters in 2022. It includes in southeast Queensland, Lismore and the New South Wales Northern Rivers region, northern Victoria and the Hawkesbury-Nepean floods on Sydney's outskirts. Of those, 6,500 claims are still outstanding. The insurance system is broken and it needs urgent reform. Vicky Staff is the Disaster Recovery Coordinator for Financial Counselors Australia, the peak body for financial counselors. She says 60 new clients approach them each day asking for help with insurance claims, some with cases dating back to 2022. The things that our clients are reporting are fairly consistent. They are coming in with issues like delays, claim denials, problems with strip-outs of their properties, problems with accessing trades and supply of goods, and also issues with temporary accommodation. The elderly, people with a disability and those with English as a second language often need the most help. Insurers fail to recognise the pre-existing vulnerabilities of our clients. What we've found is that up to 50% of complaints that are going to the ombudsman are being overturned. So it's worthwhile complaining. Insurers say they're dealing with a perfect storm of events, including more intense natural disasters. Andrew Hall is the Chief Executive of the Insurance Council of Australia. We're seeing a challenge in getting builders, getting tradespeople, finding temporary accommodation for people who can't live in their homes is also a challenge when we've got a rental crisis on our hands. It's inevitable there will be a handful of cases that weren't managed properly. He's urging people with complaints to go to their insurer and the regulator. Following the ABC's inquiries, insurance company RACV has settled with Shelley Sybaris. In a statement, a spokesperson says they were in constant contact with her and they also promptly paid out her contents insurance and offered her temporary accommodation. That report from Alison Branley and Leonie Thorne. In the United States, Donald Trump's supporters are pressuring his sole rival, Nikki Haley, to drop out of the race for the Republican presidential nomination. The former president secured a second consecutive win in yesterday's primary in New Hampshire, but his former United Nations ambassador is refusing to give in. North America correspondent Jade McMillan prepared this report. Biden too old. Trump too much chaos. A rematch no one wants. There's a better choice for a better America. Returning home to South Carolina, Nikki Haley released a new advertising campaign with a defiant message. America's new chapter, strong and proud. The former governor and UN ambassador failed to cause the upset she'd been looking for in New Hampshire, losing to Donald Trump by around 11 points. But she insists the race is far from over and she's pinning her hopes on the contest in her home state next month. Republican Senator and former presidential candidate Tim Scott is also from South Carolina 
and he told CBS her efforts are futile. The results speak for themselves. It wasn't just simply Iowa or New Hampshire. The numbers in South Carolina or Eve are even worse for Nikki. The bottom line is simply this. We should start focusing our attention on the contrast between four years of Joe Biden versus four years of Donald Trump. No presidential candidate has ever won the first two races as Donald Trump has done and not gone on to become the nominee. And despite previously pledging that the Republican National Committee would stay neutral as the contest played out, its chair, Ronna McDaniel, has also decided to weigh in on Fox News. We need to unite around our eventual nominee, which is going to be Donald Trump, and we need to make sure we beat Joe Biden. It is 10 months away till the November election, and we can't wait any longer to put our foot on the gas. That's infuriated Nikki Haley's allies, like New Hampshire's Governor Chris Sununu. He argues she's outperforming Donald Trump among moderate and independent voters and poses a bigger threat to Joe Biden. What was proven last night is that Trump is going to have a huge problem in November. Guys, this is all about the general election. We need winners. I want to win Senate seats and, and, and House seats and governorships. I want a, a, my candidate for president to win by double digits so we carry momentum in, not have some sort of nail-biter. The president won his own decisive victory in the Democratic primary in New Hampshire, although a dispute over the timing of the vote means the results are only symbolic. But his campaign is already focusing on expectations of a 2020 rematch. In a statement, Joe Biden said it's now clear that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee, adding the stakes could not be higher. This is Jade McMillan in Washington reporting for AM. Russia is calling for an emergency meeting of the United Nations Security Council after a military transport plane crashed in a border region near Ukraine. Moscow is accusing Ukraine of shooting it down and claims it was carrying 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war heading for a prisoner swap. Elias Kluwer prepared this report. Video of the crash shared on social media shows a plane falling from the sky in a snowy rural area and a massive ball of fire erupting where it hits the ground. The crash happened near the Russian city of Belgorod, about 35 kilometres from the border with Ukraine. The plane is an IL-76, a large multi-purpose aircraft the Russian military uses for transporting troops and supplies. Russia's defence ministry claims it was shot down by a Ukrainian missile strike. Here's Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. A terrorist act was committed, as a result of which, in the Belgorod region, a Russian transport aircraft was shot down, which was carrying out a flight to transport 65 military personnel of the armed forces of Ukraine from the Moscow region to Belgorod. They were accompanied by three Russian officers and a crew of six people. They all died. Independent verification is difficult. Here's Peter Dickinson, a policy expert at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Centre, speaking to the BBC. It's being treated with significant, uh, with a high degree of suspicion. Uh, notably, people are questioning uh, why Russia would use a very scarcely available uh, military transport plane to bring uh, reported 60-odd prisoners of war who could have fitted in, an, in, a, in a bus or on a train, which is the more normal form of transport, or perhaps even a passenger plane. Ukraine hasn't ruled out shooting down the plane. 
However, Ukrainian military intelligence says Kyiv wasn't asked to ensure the security of the airspace around the Belgorod area in southern Russia, as has been the case during previous prisoner of war swaps with Moscow. Experts have noted that Ukraine has been increasingly bold in its ground-based air defence lately. Just over a week ago, it claimed one of its Patriot missiles shot down a valuable Russian spy plane, the A-50. Patrick Berry is a senior defence policy lecturer at the University of Bath. If you imagine that you're Russia and you're flying in a, a jet which you either think is safe or you think maybe it's not safe, but I'm sick of these ambushes, then you may not, in the words of the military, de-conflict with the Ukrainians to say, listen, you need to stay away from anything on that airfield because we're flying in our prisoners now. And for those reasons, maybe intentionally, maybe accident uh, accidentally, something could have gone badly wrong here. It's unlikely Russia will ever allow independent investigators to access the scene. This is Elias Kluwer reporting for AM. China's the world leader when it comes to making electric vehicles, batteries, solar panels and other components for renewable energy. And while the United States, Europe and even Australia are racing to catch up, one expert says it could take at least another decade to reduce that reliance on Chinese components. Here's energy reporter Daniel Mercer. As far as industries go, Richard Pedersen certainly seems to have plenty of blue sky ahead. He's the chief executive of Tindo Solar, an Adelaide company that's Australia's only solar panel manufacturer. Yeah, it, um, business is good. Um, there's, there's certainly uh, a lot of positivity. But it's not without its challenges, because the solar panel market is one of the world's most competitive. Well, I think Australia has the reputation for being the the cheapest solar market on the planet. And that has effects for you? Yeah, it does. Tindo has focused on producing a high-quality product. We don't compete with the, the bottom end of the market or the lower-cost end of the market, but it does put a certain amount of pressure on a, on a manufacturer in Australia when the import price reduces. China controls almost 90% of the global solar panel supply chain. It's a similar story for other renewable energy technologies, including batteries, wind turbines and, increasingly, electric vehicles. There's been a wave of investment by Western governments to try to reduce that dependence. But one expert says China's 20-year head start and colossal spending may put that goal out of reach. It's not possible this decade. I think we can take many steps, but even in the next decade, it will going to be quite hard. Alden Martinson is a partner at research company Rystad Energy. He says China not only dominates renewable energy manufacturing, but also many of the associated mining and processing supply chains. So still there will be a lot of Chinese influence and a lot of dominance by Chinese companies. So you cannot have a 100% complete independent system at all when it comes to renewable space, even in 2030s. Richard Pedersen from Tindo Solar acknowledges the difficulties in competing with China, but insists it's not impossible. And he's suggesting that governments in Australia help provide seed funding to kick-start local industries. We believe there needs to be another element of support, and that is um, uh, a mechanism to protect or to, to support startup of industry, uh, certainly for a short period of time until it gets to scale to be able to compete on its own two feet. Others agree. Muriel Watt from consultancy ITP Renewables says the employment and economic gains would be worth the costs. And of all the things Australia could do, solar has got to be up there, doesn't it? One, it's going to be the major energy source for Australia, whichever way you look at it. And two, we've been involved in developing the whole technology from day one. What's more, she says the COVID pandemic should have taught us that Australia shouldn't be too reliant on others for crucial supplies. 
Daniel Mercer reporting. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane.